Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Before we jump into today's content, I have something I want to share with you. In a recent 2019 CEO benchmark study conducted by the Predictive Index, CEOs disclosed that four out of five top challenges they face relate to talent optimization. To win consistently, you need confidence. Confidence that you've got the right people in the right roles, that they're deployed around the right projects, and that those projects are mapped to the right organizational objectives. And you need more than gut level confidence. You need data to back that up. But the truth is, the rapid pace of change is exhausting. People and systems are being pushed to the edge, and diversity, equality, and inclusion issues remain unresolved. In this age of empathy, we can do better. That's why I'm super excited about a new talent optimization platform that Ben Straup, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions and a certified partner with the Predictive Index, is ready to show you. This technology-enabled, data-driven platform will give you an unfair advantage so you can win and succeed more. Visit peoplegetresults.com and use the code RAINMAKER to schedule your free personalized assessment and demo today. That's peoplegetresults.com, and don't forget to use the code RAINMAKER today. Hey, this is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm here again today with my good friend and colleague, Roy Jones. Roy, how are you today? Very good. This is going to be a fun one. It's really an issue that's just impacting our industry right now, and I just love it when we get into the stuff that's industry-wide. Yeah, absolutely. I I am really excited. So today we've got Bob McCartney with us. So Bob is the Washington Post senior regional correspondent uh, who covers government and politics in greater Washington. He does a every Friday morning radio analysis on WAMU 88.5 FM. Uh, He's also appeared as a guest commentator on MSNBC, Fox News, and a, a whole host of other local outlets. His background includes, you know, a wide variety of roles, including foreign editor, national security editor, foreign correspondent in Mexico and Germany, and the managing editor of the International Herald Tribune in Paris. Bob, thank you so much for being here with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. We're particularly interested in having you on the show today because you wrote uh, an article recently exploring what's going on in the nonprofit sector, particularly in the the Washington area, but really I think it's translatable across the country. For the the listeners who haven't had an opportunity to to read your column yet, and we'll link to it in the show notes, could you give us a quick summary of the findings of that article? Sure. Uh, Basically, the nonprofit sector is under siege right now, like so many other parts of the economy and the society, because of the combination, the one-two punch of COVID and the recession. The you know, what I found from talking to people, a lot of top people in the Washington area in the philanthropic and nonprofit sector was people are expecting that up to a third of nonprofits will not survive the, 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 these crises. Uh, by the time of economic recovery, uh, up to a third will have, will have shut their doors or merged. And that, of course, is because partly because of increased demand for services because so many people are more needy now because of the recession, but also because of worries and concerns about funding. The recession is hurting foundations, is hurting individuals' balance sheets. There there was a big surge of giving, a lot of very generous giving in 
March, April, May, when this all first started and everybody was very focused on how bad things were. But then as time went on, donors got cautious when they saw the, how long it was likely to, the crisis was likely to go on and they started worrying about their own balance sheets. And the, the need, of course, is just dwarfing the resources available. Um, the Greater Community Foundation, Greater Washington Community Foundation, which is the principal funder in the Washington region, I think is a very good example. They were able to collect quick, quite quickly um, $8 million in donations for their, an emergency relief fund but the, which was a lot in a very short time, again, that generosity at the start of all this, but the demands were for more than 60 million. Wow. So they, it was just, it wasn't even close to, to what was needed. What they got wasn't even close to what was needed. So I think the most vulnerable by far, you know, are small nonprofits, especially ones that are fairly young and don't have a long established track record didn't have very many reserves. Uh, I think those are the most vulnerable to having to merge or, or shut their doors. All of these problems, as if that wasn't enough, all of these problems are compounded by the nonprofit sector going through the kind, a kind of reckoning over structural racial inequalities in the, in the country and in the philanthropic and nonprofit sector that the the current crises have you know cast a light on and spotlighted and the you you've got a lot of uh people doing a lot of soul searching about you know whether they've been doing enough to overcome racial inequities not only in their giving practices but also even in their staffing so that's there's just an awful lot going on and things are going to be very different in the nonprofit sector, uh, just as they are going to be very different in so many other parts of our society when these twin crises are over. It's just a sobering reality check, I think, for, for our sector. You know, one of the things that I was curious about in, you know, reading through your article and, and looking at all the different interviews and conversations you had had, I was struck by the fact that it, it looked to me like the, the majority of, of people that you spoke with seemed to have a perspective that they were they were sort of holding on until things might return to normal at some level. I'm curious to know if you talk to anybody who said, yeah, you know, this is a crisis situation, but we're going to use this to to make a clear pivot to come out of this in a healthier way. Did, did you get any of that feedback or yes. are people really just kind of hunkered down at this point? No, no, I did get that. I mean, in several respects. First of all, a bunch of people are trying, you know, the, this, the, the thesis is, the, the lesson is, you know, never waste a good crisis. Sure. <laughs> and the, this is certainly a crisis. So uh, for one thing, some people are sort of looking at just the tactics of it. You know, some people are trying to pivot from depending on donations and contributions to trying to find ways of earning income for their services. So, for instance, you know, trying to get fees. I mean, th there was a group that that hooked up uh, mentors, uh, sort of older mentors, with you know retired people, sort of to advise younger people on their trying to get ahead in their professions and their lives. 
and so they were going to charge you know 10 bucks a person to to be a member of the network and there's there's basically an entrance fee to participate and the and of course a lot of the people who were interested in doing it were willing to pay that because they were retired and they had resources and they wanted to help and so uh, and then other people were looking for ways to to raise to raise money. Obviously, the mergers are going to be a very big deal. I mean, you hear a lot of talk about groups with sort of similar aims merging in order to cut costs, in order to gain efficiencies, get economies of scale. The I know there's a, some mergers in the you know the, the housing affordability area uh, are being discussed. You know, there is some duplication of services in a lot of these areas, too. I mean, you've got multiple nonprofits basically trying to do the same thing, and it isn't that efficient. So certainly mergers are something that people are looking at. And then, you know, the thing I mentioned about racial equity, I mean, I, I heard a lot about that from people. I mean, people brought that up a lot. In fact, I originally started working on the story because somebody reached out to me to try to get to me, get me to write a story just about how nonprofits were having this sort of moment of reckoning about uh, about racial equity that they needed to figure out you know some people feel like they're what they've been doing has failed everything they've been doing has failed because the pandemic and the recession are exposing you know how vulnerable uh you know african american latino and other uh, communities of color are suffering and how vulnerable and marginalized they are and they thought, well, it's, it's been our responsibility to try to overcome that. And obviously we failed, so we need to double down on, on, on fixing it. So, and I'm sure there's a dozen other ways that people are looking for lessons to be drawn and improvements that can be made going forward in the sector that I don't even know about or I've forgotten about right now. No, that, that's good to know. You know, you, you hit on two big things. I mean, the, this idea of closures and mergers, we often hear about hear about that in a negative light, right? That people are concerned that there's going to be closures, concerned that organizations are going to be forced to merge. I don't know the facts on the ground in, in the DC metro area as well as I probably should, but I know that I, I live in the Twin Cities and there are dozens of really small organizations that are, you know, woefully undercapitalized. They, they don't have the access to the kind of talent that they need to, to scale and be successful or to even access the, the kind of foundation relationships that they might need to, to fund their programs. And oftentimes what I see is, you know, they, they're created by someone who's well-meaning, who really wants to make an impact in their community, but they're doing the same work that six or seven other charities are doing. So when I look that's at that's absolutely the case also in the Washington area. Okay. Yeah. So I, I look at that and I think, you know, maybe it's not a bad idea. Obviously it has a negative impact on, on people's individual employment and things of that nature, but it may not be a bad idea in the long term for this kind of consolidation to happen and for, for organizations to merge and, and hopefully emerge out of this crisis in a stronger way. When, when you had those conversations about organizations merging, is that the tenor of the discussions or, or is it more out of concern for preserving what, was, what they had as small as it might be? I think I heard a little bit of both. Okay. I mean, I think that some people with a sort of more strategic perspective and maybe some distance on it said, look, this is a necessary thing. The, I mean, somebody, a woman who, ad, who advises 
a lot of nonprofits on capacity building, basically helps nonprofits build capacity. She said, look, there's a lot of redundancy. There's a lot of duplication of services. A lot of nonprofits have sprung up since the 2008, 2009 recession, just the kinds that you just described, Andrew. You know, an individual who really wanted to make a difference got a nonprofit going, great idea, noble cause, worthy mission, but very undercapitalized and basically doing the same kind of thing as a lot of others. And it just isn't efficient and it makes sense for them to merge. Then you also heard the perspective of, oh my God, we're gonna have to merge and I'm gonna lose my independence and you know staff's going to be laid off because some you know it's when we do things more efficiently that means we won't need as many people and this is you know change is always painful and this is going to be difficult but i think the people with the the big picture perspective think that this this makes sense for the sector i mean the I mean, to some extent, the sector goes through the same kind of cycles as the as the private business. You know, the I mean, a recession, a downturn, a liquidation is a time when you get consolidation and, you know, the weaker, less well capitalized institutions, you know, go out of business and the, you know, and, and what emerges is stronger for the future. I mean, this is not a cycle that's unfamiliar to to us in the capitalist society that's one of the things i'm hearing bob is that what we're seeing here is is uh are some issues that are coming to the forefront that were were really festering uh before COVID hit us i mean there were you know there has been a huge proliferation in the number of nonprofits. you know i think i think last year there were close to a million seven or eight years ago there were only five hundred thousand to see that number double in the last decade, uh, this bubble, many are saying, was bound to come. Some are saying also that, that and this kind of a, is, a, is, a, is a pivot uh, from, from this same issue, that the Trump tax changes, uh, right. the, the deductibility issues, that, that we were destined for a decline in giving. And of course, this has is, this is, uh, made it much worse. But thoughts there? Yeah, no, I heard the same thing. I, that had slipped my mind. The somebody told me they had seen this coming anyway and that uh, especially with the tax change that there was less incentive uh, in the tax structure to have corporate and individual giving and so less money was going to be forthcoming and some of the impact of that was already being seen and the proliferation you know the just super rapid growth in the number of nonprofits uh, was already beginning to cause strains and that there was some consolidation happening, beginning to happen already. And that this is just drastically the COVID and the recession have just drastically accelerated it. So I, I heard exactly the same thing as you, Roy. The other, the other aspect of this that you, that you mentioned, the, the whole racial inequality component. You know, we, we spoke yesterday uh, with a woman named Chris Putnam Walker Lee, who she wrote a, a book recently called um, Delusional Altruism, and she advises high net worth donors, uh, individuals, corporations, and foundations. And we asked her the same thing, you know, talk about the underinvestment 
that's historically happened into um, smaller, primarily uh, minority-led organizations and what's that done to the sector. It sounds like you heard the same thing that, that she's been hearing, which is organizations are finally starting to grapple with the idea that maybe our approach has not been effective. Maybe we haven't made the impact that, that we thought we would, that we hoped we would. I'm, I'm curious to know, since you talked to such a wide spectrum of, of organizational leaders in the community, did you find that perspective fairly consistent across all different levels and types, or was that really consolidated in one area or another? That was very strong among, I would say, the, if you will, the elite leaders of, in the nonprofit world. In other words, the people you know, running the biggest funding organizations or the, the most respected, the longest serving, whatever. I mean, a lot of key people at the top in the in the Washington area are are extremely focused on this. I mean, if you will, uh, the group that that basically is the advises the entire nonprofit community in the, sort of the, the Center for Advancement for Nonprofit Advancement. They're very focused on this. The Community Foundation, as I said, the biggest funder the United Way of the Greater National Capital Area, the Washington Regional Association of Grant Makers, which is the association of people who donate. They are all very focused on this, and they're focused just on what you said, Andrew. They're focused on what's now being recognized as having been neglect of funding of sort of smaller nonprofits serving communities of color, marginalized communities of color, especially ones led by people of color, that the, they have been neglected. And the, for instance, the Meyer Foundation, which is one of the most respected and longest you know, serving foundations in the Washington area, it's actually founded by people who used to own the Washington Post, the Meyer family. The, the Meyer, they're, it's not connected with the paper anymore. But the Meyer Foundation, they, they have basically made a point recently, very recently, in, in increasing their funding of those kinds of groups, the small groups serving people in you know, black and Latino communities, led by people of color, small groups that, that have been neglected traditionally. They've really pivoted a bit to, to sort of increase their funding there. And then the Washington Regional Association of Grantmakers, which was focused on this last year. Let me say this, this was okay. something the, the awareness of the racial inequity issue was something that has been going on for at least a couple of years here. Washington Regional Association of Grantmakers did a study last year that found that less than 3% of total giving went to nonprofits led by people of color. Wow. Um, less than 3%. And this is, you know, this is a community the greater, I mean, DC is, is almost 50% black, right? It's more than 50% people of color. That's just the district, but even the Washington region, you know, is, a, is, has a very high percentage of African-Americans, Latinos and, and Asians. So the, and other people of color. So th this is a very diverse community. The money wasn't going to nonprofits led by people of color and that's so it's both both in the 
it's both where the money was going and what kinds of people were managing the money. That, that those are both issues that have really come to the fore. Now, when I talk to sort of small nonprofits on the front lines who were basically worried about, you know, getting through the next month, you know, they were not as focused on the racial inequity issue. It was okay. more the US what kinds of people were focused on. It was more people you know, with the biggest, with the big perspective, looking at the region as a whole, looking at the sector as a whole, people with the most money, maybe with the most time, you know, and uh, capacity for looking at the big issue. And it was less, you know, the the people running, a, individuals running a small profit who were just trying to get through the, the current crisis. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention was, you know, a bunch of nonprofits, the shifted what they were doing in the crisis because the need had changed. I mean, the best example is there's a very prominent nonprofit uh, that helps African-American communities in the poorest part of the District of Columbia, east of the Anacostia River, that uh, life, it's called Life Pieces to Masterpieces. And they do, they, they, they do arts programs for young black males. And it's been very successful. It's gotten a lot of support. It's got a you know charismatic, driven, committed founder. Uh, and they, they said that they were doing arts programs. Well, they shifted, you know, on a dime to delivering food <laughs> and trying to get computers to to their families. Basically, suspend. They didn't suspend, but they cut back drastically on the arts programs that they traditionally do, because the need was food, you know, get food to these people and also to get computers to them so that they could do virtual learning because the schools were closed and the schools were only working if you had a computer. And of course, a lot of people in their community don't have computers. And you saw a lot of that where people like suddenly just shifted. A lot of the focus went from all kinds of nonprofit work to food and shelter. Yep. Those were the two things that people were really focused on, and especially food at the beginning. And that's still a problem. Food security is still a problem, and increasingly housing security is the problem. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, with the eviction onslaught that looks like it's coming down the pipe pretty quickly, what what were you hearing from the, the nonprofit providers and the foundations? Like, where how do they see that further impacting the work they're doing? Oh, it's it's... I mean, it, you know, the disaster is just beginning. I mean, I think a big mistake that people are making, both about the disease and about the recession, you know, is that we're through the worst of it. I don't think we're through the worst of it. I think the worst is yet to come. And the evictions are a really good example. What I was hearing, you know, there were evictions moratoria declared in March. Nobody could be evicted. Uh, and that's been extended in the District of Columbia, in my region, through until December, in effect until December. But most people don't, in my area don't live in the District of Columbia. They live in suburban Maryland or Northern Virginia. They live in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And there, the eviction moratoria have been lifted. And, they, and they're getting going now. So people are predicting a big increase in homelessness. Well... Homeless, you know, it's much more expensive to deal with the homeless and much more disruptive to deal with the homeless than it is to keep people in their homes. So 
this is pe people think that this is going to be a big big burden on the social services right when state and local governments are going broke because of a loss of revenue because of the recession so this is a, this is a big a big issue now the foods the food issue has gotten better but it's still a problem i mean the demand is just astronomical it's up you know some places are saying some distribution sites are saying they're getting a 30% increase in demand other places are seeing increases of you know four times as many people coming five times as many people coming as were coming in february and so the donations are drying up so the the food and shelter and the evictions crisis are huge and then you know i hate to you know talk about federal Washington, but I mean, a heck of a lot depends on what, whether or not Congress comes through with a relief package. Sure. I yeah. mean, a lot depends on that. And I mean, the unemployment insurance, whether or not there's an extension of the extra federal unemployment insurance and how big that is, that's really important. Whether or not there's extra aid for state and local governments, that's really important whether or not they extend the eviction, the ban on evictions and federally subsidized properties, that's really important. And we don't know how any of that's going to come out right now. I mean, some people are saying they don't think there's going to be a deal, which would just be catastrophic. I mean, there needs to be some deal. The, and, and a lot of parts, a, a lot depends on, on how much relief there is coming from the feds. But even if there's another relief package, you know, this is probably going to be the last federal relief package before the election. Sure. Everybody says that. So, you know, th that means no more help for from the feds until November. And the feds are the only ones who can help because they're the only ones who can print money. The state and local governments don't, ha they have to balance their budgets and they're going broke. So, you know, there's no, the cavalry isn't coming <laughs> or, or if it is coming, it's going to be, you know, it's only going to be half of what you need. Right. And the, and that just puts even more pressure on the, the nonprofit community. You know, I hate to sound so negative, but I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, I've done a lot of work, research on this and it's a really bad situation. And I don't, I think there's a lot of whistling past the graveyard here where people aren't recognizing how bad it is. And when you look at how the disease is resurging so much in the in many parts of the country, so we don't even have the disease under control, it's a very dire situation. I, I hear you. And I, I tend to agree. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to ever be the boy that cried wolf, if you will, but in a situation like this, we're sort of at that point, whether we like it or not, you know, I'm crying wolf. <laughs> right. And I, I, and it, but, but it's because I see a wolf. <laughs> right, right. Right. You know, Roy and I have been in this nonprofit. There's a real wolf. <laughs> for, for decades now. And we love this sector, but we've reached a point at which, you know, individual giving to charitable organizations is not going to solve problems like this. Right. And so, absolutely, you know, the the challenge is that there's, um, and I don't want don't want to get deeply into politics here, but there's so much dysfunction, both at the federal level and at the state and local level, even uh, at this point, that just getting deals done like this have become such a complicated process and such a politicized process 
But the reality is whether you have a thousand nonprofits in your community or a dozen or all million in the country, they're not big enough, they're not coordinated enough, and they're not scaled enough to solve these problems. So it, it does require a quite strong public-private partnership that I just don't think we're ready for, you know? And I, I'd be curious to hear what you're hearing on the ground from nonprofit leaders. Obviously, it sounds like they recognize there's a need for, for the federal government to step in, but what are you hearing just about that level of partnership between whether it's, you know, federal, state, local government entities and the nonprofit sector? Are they, is there a silver lining anywhere or is this really just a crisis inflection point? No, there, there is a silver lining because the state and, you know, a lot of these nonprofits, especially the ones that are doing okay or basically you know, not at risk of closing, they have contracts to deliver services, contracts with the, the state and local governments to deliver services to the public. So I talked to a group in Prince George's County that uh, provides services to the intellectually and physically less abled. And the, so they, they, you know, half their, half or more of their money is Medicaid money. I mean, they're basically contracted, to, you know, with Medicaid funds to deliver services to, to people that the state has to provide. And so they're doing okay because that money, that Medicaid money is still flowing. And the, the risk is that if there isn't a replenishment of state and local funds by the federal government in the next six months, then they might have to cut the Medicaid funding. And so they would have to reduce their services. But, but I've talked to a number of nonprofits, especially the more, the longer established ones, who depended, you know, got like half or a third of their funds from state and local government contracts and uh, the rest from foundations and individual givers. You know, so they have funds, you know, coming still from the government, the state and local government, not the feds, to, uh, except in that Medicaid example, to keep going. And that's, you know, that's been a light, that's been crucial to them continuing to function. And without that, they wouldn't be able to function. You know, so there, there, there's a very robust, I would say, public-private partnership going on for a lot of these nonprofits, where they're basically, um, instead of the state or the local government setting up its own bureaucracy to deliver these social services, they contract with these nonprofits to deliver the social services. So that is, those are continuing um, they're under pressure because there's a lot of demand for some of them in, in the crisis. Uh, it's harder to function because of the need for social distancing in many cases, but they're, they're plugging along. So th that, that's a silver lining. Now, the risk down the road, as I said, is that the budgets of the state and local governments are cratering because of loss of sales tax, loss of income tax, um, loss of gasoline tax. People aren't driving sure, as much, yeah. so there's less gasoline. I mean, there's just less revenue coming in. There's a big increase in demand uh, for spending. I mean, it costs more to run a school if you've got to socially distance everybody and put half of you know half your kids or more at, at home. And the so the expenses are going up. So 
what's going to happen to those contracts down those state and local government contracts down the road and how that's going to affect the nonprofits that's still a big question mark so but at least for the moment those are continuing now in terms of you know i i would think that the, ultimately the nonprofits and the state and local governments it would be to their advantage to cooperate more and find new ways to to partner but right now, my impression is everybody's just desperately trying to get through the week and, and no one's really thinking much about, you know, sort of longer term plans along those lines that may be coming. I'd like to kind of go back to this other issue, just about the number of, of nonprofits, whether uh, they're public charities or, 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 or private charities, uh, you know, that are going to have to merge or go out of business. I mean, my fear is because we're going to be so frontline focused, and I'm a big advocate. Uh, both Andrew and myself have worked in the homeless shelter space and in the food bank space for, for about a decade now, and, and we know those organizations very well. But because of the, the problem, you know, my fear is that we're going to, that the, the funds are going to concentrate there and not move further upstream to help resolve some of the uh, uh, racial inequity problems. Oh, you know, yeah. I'm thinking about job training. I'm thinking about skills training. I'm thinking about employment uh, services. Those nonprofits that work in those spaces, uh, just just concerned that, that the crisis is going to be so great that we don't move upstream to try and solve the problems. Yeah, no, I think that's an extremely relevant uh, challenge right now. The, you know, I'm very interested in workforce development jobs training, skills training, and that's an issue that doesn't get nearly as much attention from the media and the public uh, as I think it deserves. You know, if you talk to business people, that's one of the first things they talk about. And I think there's a, there's a really good area where the, the government, you could, going back to the previous question, where the government and the nonprofits could cooperate. Because I know in Virginia, for instance, the business community is very focused on trying to make sure that the state continues its funding, you know, even in this budget crisis, that it continues to fund skills, training, workforce development, because, you know, a lot of people's jobs are not coming back. You know, there was a, there's 30 million people unemployed in the country or something like that. A very large number of those people are in sectors like in the restaurant business or the hotel business or the airline business. A lot of those jobs aren't coming back. A lot of restaurants are going to close. You know, hotels, it's going to be a different world. Airlines, it's going to be a different world for a while. And a lot of people with sort of low-level frontline jobs in those sectors, they're going to have to find new jobs. They're going to have to – and so who's – what are those – they need to be trained for the, you know, the jobs of the future. Well, the jobs of the future require, you know, they're largely in healthcare and IT, and you don't have to, you know, get a PhD or even a master's or even an undergraduate degree to work in IT, but you do need at least a GED and, uh, and probably a certificate of some sort to, uh, in order to do, you know, basic IT work or, or to work in a hospital or a medical center. And so, so you know, someone's got to train those people to do that. And 
it's very important that that gets that that doesn't get neglected just as you said roy when all the focus goes to the emergency urgent you know feed people find shelters for them you know make sure they're they're not sick the, the, you you can't neglect the the long term uh, needs um, in those areas. So I I think those job skills workforce training that that's a very big challenge that's at risk of being neglected. So I, I want to stay on this but pivot just a little bit for a second, Bob. You know, as you're talking about workforce development and the skills retraining and things like that. It just made me also think about, you know, we've talked about the nonprofit sector broadly. We've talked about social services, but there's this whole other issue of colleges and universities, right? Oh yeah. Where their business model is completely upended at this point because they've lost their donation revenue. They've also lost their fee for service revenue. And on top of that, we have this entire student debt crisis underlying all of it. I don't know if, if you got into that conversation in your interviews or not, but you know, talk a little bit, if you would, about how you see that playing into the overall conversation around both the nonprofit sector and just the economy in general, where, where you think that leads and, and how it might tie into some of this workforce development uh, angle. Well, I think that, again, the colleges and universities were undergoing a structural change or were facing stru- long-term structural challenges and the COVID and the recession have accelerated the process of having to deal with that. I mean, the student debt crisis combined with the fact that the colleges and universities were producing a lot of, we're not producing enough people with the kinds of skills, especially in STEM, you know, science, technical, engineering, and math. We're not producing enough people with STEM skills that the corporations, you know, that the employers said they needed, and too many with liberal arts degrees that were less needed. And it was getting so expensive to go to school. And the, I mean, they were, they were facing problems anyway. Well, this has now accelerated that because they, I mean, they've got, they can't have people come to campus. People are, there's a rebellion against paying full tuition if they're not getting the full college experience. The donations obviously are down. State funding is down or is going to be down. And they they need to figure out what kind of training and education they're providing people. Now, in I know in Virginia, which is sort of at the forefront of this effort nationally, I mean, the university, the state universities are really making a huge effort to increase uh, investment in computer engineering, IT, artificial intelligence uh, degrees. And this is all linked partly to the whole effort to the successful effort to bring the Amazon HQ2 to the, to the Washington area, which they succeeded in. And they succeeded in part because they said, we're going to invest a lot in, in training people. But those are, you know, those are master's degrees. Those are people getting master's degrees in these skills. I mean, there's a real need for especially community colleges and sort of and, and state institutions to increase the training again for certificate programs or associate degrees in in these you know jobs of the future. And then I think that the you know there's going to be I think some some number of you know less well funded 
colleges and universities that don't focus in those in, in training students for those needed jobs, some of those are going to close. You know, I mean, you're going to see mergers or closures of schools as well. I mean, I, from what I've heard, a lot of small liberal arts schools, you know, except for the prestigious ones, you know, which attract people because they want the name brand education, you know, a lot of them are really in crisis. Um, and I think they're going to be they're going to be going out of business. Uh, there's going to be a consolidation there, just as there is in so many other sectors of society. So I'm not, a, I got to say, I'm not an expert on higher education, but I do know that what, that the graduates produced are not meeting their demands and that there has to be a shift there. And it, I think that whatever shift is coming is being accelerated by what's going on right now. Yeah, for sure. So we are, we are close to out of time, but I just want to, I do want to close with a little bit more of a philosophical question for you. And I'm curious to know in all the research and all the conversations you've had around this, this entire topic and particularly with the, the nonprofit organizations that you, that you've engaged with, can you talk a little bit about or share a little bit about the level of, or the lack of, uh, resilience that you see in this sector in the community, just broadly speaking? Well, I think it varies a lot. Okay. I mean, I think you have some, it's funny you should mention that because one of the people I talked to, a woman who runs um, uh, anti, the, the biggest anti-poverty nonprofit in Prince George's County, which is the, uh, you know, majority black, fairly well-to-do, but majority black a suburban county in Maryland, you know, bigger population than the District of Columbia, by the way. And she said that resilience is uh, the most important thing you can have in Mm -hmm. a nonprofit. And that being able, she'd been there for 17 years, I think. And she said that being able to respond to whatever the latest thing is, the latest change is, that that's the most important strength that one has. And I think that Again, those that have been around for a long time, I mean, this is sort of tautological, right? I mean, the if you've been around for a long time, then you've demonstrated that you have resilience, sure. right? So, so, and they're going to be the ones that are most likely to be able to adapt again and survive again. And of course, they have the longer term relations with funders and a track record to which to point to justify even more support. Those are the ones, you know, that are going to be most successful. But I think the newer nonprofits, the smaller ones with less capitalization uh, that have been able to sort of get by because the economy has been so good, you know, they have never had to prove their resilience. And I think that there's a lot of them that aren't that resilient. And, you know, it's not a, you've got a lot of very idealistic people you know, doing God's work, you know, everybody's praises what they're doing and it's all very worthy, but it's not necessarily done in the most efficient manner. Sure. And, you know, it's not, these are not people who got into the business because they wanted to prove how efficient they could be. They got into the business because they wanted to help people. And that's very laudable, but in a situation like this, you got to have the efficiency too. So I think that, you know, that's, that's the issue facing the sector right now. 
It is a great statement, and I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Bob, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks My for, pleasure. Thanks for focusing on the sector um, for the article and, and just for your contribution. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good luck I, to you. I, one other question before I let you go. If uh, someone wants to follow up, wants to learn more, connect with you, what's the best way for people to reach you? Email me, robert.mccartney at washpost.com. Awesome. You can just find my story and click on the byline and it'll send me an email. Perfect. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.